Changing the world of work isn't about tactics. It's not about meetings or metrics. It isn't about the benefits, perks, or opportunities. It's about being brave enough to put love first. Everything rises and falls on leadership. So as leaders, we're the ones who have to make it happen. This is the Love in Action podcast. And here's your host, Marcel Schwantes. Welcome, Love in Action Nation and the world to episode 31. Thank you for joining us. My guest today says something really interesting. He says, we have now moved past the information age and are now living in the imagination age. You know, all those creative thinking skills, they're now just as valuable as those so-called hard skills. And you and me and all of us, we have these innate creative skills All we have to do is know how to unleash them. But what does imagination have to do with leadership? Well, ever since he was in college, my guest today, Brian Paradis, author of the compelling new book, Lead with Imagination. He's been intrigued by that same question. What does imagination in a bottom line world have to do with how we lead? So for 30 years, he studied this idea as he honed his business and leadership skills. And one thing became crystal clear to Brian. The combination of leader plus imagination equals an opportunity to unleash all kinds of potential. And Brian's new book is a real page turner. It's going to inspire you to the possibilities to imagine, create and innovate because we're all born with it. So who is Brian Paradis? He is senior partner with C-Suite Solutions, a national advisory firm focused on helping to move the healthcare industry from volume to value. And I say healthcare industry because previously, Brian was president of Florida Hospital's Central Region. Get this, a $4 billion enterprise with over 25,000 employees and 2,000 physicians. And under his leadership, Florida Hospital became the number one ranked hospital in Florida by U.S. News and World Report for three years. I'm also honored to call Brian a friend as he and I live in the same community of College Dale, Tennessee, which is a suburb of Chattanooga. We often have coffee together and some real engaging conversations. Lastly, before I bring in Brian, you may have an interest in this. I'm going to be giving away 15 copies of Brian's book, Lead with Imagination, to 15 lucky listeners who respond to my call for participants to my latest research project. Now, I want you involved in it. I'm going to explain what I mean later in the show and how you can get your free copy of Brian's book. So let's dive in and talk with Brian Paradis. Brian, welcome to the Love in Action podcast. Thank you. It's so awesome to be here. So... We start with a gratitude moment, as I do with every guest. And the question is, what makes you smile when you get up in the morning these days? Well, um, Marcel, the first thing is, you know, since this is about imagination, one of the things that we talk about is coloring outside the lines. So I'm going to take a little bit of liberty here and, and color just a bit out of, the, out of the lines and tell you that I know it may not be cool, but the first thing I got to tell you is I'm a fan of, of you and your podcast. And maybe that gets accentuated because we share cups of coffee every now and then. 
I first went to the fan thing and said, I, I love your podcast. Every time I get the chance to drive a long distance, it's one of the first ones that, that comes up on my list. And your guests are amazing. Your process has been just really um, important. And I just always find myself resonating you know, with the core principles and truth. So first one, I, I just couldn't, couldn't resist you know, saying that. Mm. The second thing is I started this morning thinking a, a little bit imaginatively about the time we're going to get today. And I was thinking about, you know, you and I have this fun part where we occasionally grab a cup of coffee at the same coffee shop, which is kind yeah. of how, how we met. Um, right. And I thought, you know, if others would like to come join us sometime in Chattanooga and for our cups of coffee talking about, you know, love and love in action, then we've got this great event space right behind the coffee part. And we could begin the first annual love in action symposium, you mm. know, as soon as folks are ready to come, I know that's something you've shared on, it's been on your heart, you know, over the time of seeing that. And so I'm kind of thinking it's about time. So the next time we, we're going to have a, a get together for a cup of coffee, let's put a big announcement out that anyone who'd like to come join, we're going to spend a day talking about, you know, love and action and sharing, sharing stories. So that's off the, off the uh, grid. Now I'll get back onto the inside <laughs> the lines here. And I think when you ask this question, it's a great and a fun question about what makes you have gratitude. For me, it's always in two parts. It's the unchanging, never moves. You know, you could ask me 10 years from now, it'll be the same answer, and that's family. I've got five kids and two dogs and two grand dogs and a grandbaby, and, and those are always a party and always, you know, meaningful and, and always a reminder of what life is ultimately, you know, about, especially on a Love and Action podcast. And the second one is this, this amazing group of clients that, that I've begun working with that are, are leading with imagination in an extraordinary way. And, and I'm getting the chance to learn from them, you know, even more about what it might mean to be leading with imagination. So that's kind of where I'd, I'd leave it for now. Mm. Well, I'm not going to let you off the hook yet before I transition. I want to first acknowledge what you said, how you started your gratitude moment is, uh, you know, this, this podcast and how it, how it speaks to you and how you're a fan is something that I had to respond to a calling. So, you know, in your heart of hearts, when you know that there's something that needs to shift. And for me, it's reimagining a new kind of leadership, a new kind of workplace, no different than you writing your book yeah. and, you know, and your experiences at Florida Hospital. I knew that uh, I had to elevate the conversation. Uh, you know, it started out with writing and then I wanted to bring it to a podcast format and now it's taken off. So I really appreciate that. I want to acknowledge you for that. And it's, it's comments like that that really keep me going. And, you know, getting emails from random people around the world saying, <laughs> love what you're doing. I can't tell you how much that speaks to me and, and how that motivates yeah. me to just want to continue the movement. Yeah. And the second thing is the symposium idea. So, yeah, thanks for bringing it out into the, bring it out to the world, Brian. It's yeah. something that you're I welcome. know a lot about. <laughs> yeah. It's a great idea. It's a great idea. It is. Uh, it's, it's like, the, you know, the natural next step, I think. Mm -hmm. It's the segue to what we're doing is, okay, how do we expand this? You know, I have a friend, uh, shout out to Mike Vacanti, yep. who has the Humans First Club yeah. movement yeah. that is now has spread all over the world. So I'm sort of following in his footsteps now to maybe yeah. start Love in Action events as well. So yes. What struck me at 31 podcasts, which seems daunting to me, <laughs> you've got way more material than you'd ever need to put on a day or two symposium, you know, and then that doesn't even count. The, the listeners and others that are doing this that to come share their real life experiences yeah. 
you know, on the ground as well. So I, yeah. I think you've got everything ready to go and, and I'll be holding your coat when you're, when you're ready. <laughs> the invitation for our next coffee uh, and conversation. Uh, too funny. So let's get acquainted with you. Um, for people that aren't familiar with your work, what would you say is your why? My why, I think, to be clear, is always wanted to be a difference maker. You know, I always find the journeys that, that life takes you on, you know, again, strange sometimes. It's the only way to describe it. I started college as a social work theology major. Yeah. So that's my why, is how do you help people, you know, um, find their, their God-given potential and, and be all that they're capable of being. Um, I ended up as an accounting major by the end of the first year. Don't, don't even ask me how that, that happens to somebody. Um, but I never lost that, lost that passion about being a difference maker. And, so that, and then I think the next part is, it's, it, it, to me, a difference maker is sort of equal parts doer and dreamer. You know, mm. if all you're doing is dreaming, you're not getting anything done. But if all you're doing is doing without a clear vision or picture of what it is you, you want to be about, then you're spinning your wheels. And so, so for me, I think that's it. And then it translated into being a difference maker at an individual level. And that's part of the joys I had of leadership is that, you know, I can make a difference in the person right next to me, you know, that, that I had some relationship with. And then the second part was things for me always became systemic and scalable. How do I take that and then make it, you know, again, across systems that affect lots of people and how do you achieve that scalability? So that, mm -hmm. that's probably my best definition of, of the big why is being that difference maker who's working at the individual level, making a difference, but then, but then also thinking deeply about how do you build things at a systemic and scalable level as well. Yeah. And, you know, and that's good segue to your book. And I'm wondering if you've already answered the question, but maybe a, a more personal spin here. Lead with Imagination is the name yeah. of the book. So let's skim the surface first. I mean, why did you write this book, Brian? Why now? Things sometimes are just practical. I had space and a little bit of time to do it. And anyone who's endeavored or even thought about writing a book, it's a ridiculous time commitment. Not unlike, I think, the commitment I watch you putting into this podcast. And the immediate return on investment isn't exactly screaming at you, you know, to do it. So there is a passion element that's got to be a part of it. You know, for me, it was that I had a little bit of time, but then it was rooted in this, um, you know, one day I was, I was asked to come talk to, you know, a group that the mayor in Orlando had put together. And they had two groups at the tables up front. They had a tech, you know, med tech or medical, you know, biotech group and they had a healthcare, a hospital group. So there's like six of us total sitting across, you know, the biotech guys and the, the hospital guys. And I'm listening to the biotech. They went first and they're introducing themselves and, and sounding very impressive. Um, and then, and then I offered my colleagues in the hospital side to go first. And the descriptions are, hi, I'm from so-and-so hospital. We're a multi tertiary, everything offering hospital. We've got X number of beds, you know, we're a four billion dollar, whatever it is, you know, thing. And I'm just watching the audience and I'm going, hmm, you know, and this sort of little thing was going off from a Jerry Seinfeld episode, you know, going yada, yada, yada. They don't care. So I, it was just those, those moments where I stood up and when I got up, I just looked at the audience. I said, hi, my name's Brian. I'm from Florida Hospital and we love taking care of people. And I sat down, no description. And I thought about it, Marcel, and it was kind of like, if the first time I met you, I went, hi, I'm Brian. 
you know, I have three cars, you know, I have a cabin, you know, in the woods in Georgia, you know, in a home, you know, I've got this, I've got that. That's the strangest kind of an introduction. And it's so non-human. I mean, that's not what we really do, you know, to it. So to me, it was about how do I take this giant organization and make it feel livable? So that was probably that moment, you know, when I, when I stopped and said, you know, we all have that moment where something in you just kind of snaps and you go, what am I doing here? Why are we doing it this way? Why do I think the way that I, I think? Why am I functioning in the relationships the way I am? You know, and I said, okay, it's time to start thinking and doing differently. And maybe out of that experience, once I saw something happen, I wanted to share that experience in case it could be helpful you know, to other people. Yeah, I like that. I think we can we can go a little deeper because there's so many leadership books out there. What would you say makes yours different? What a great question. And I'll just take a shot. I may not be right. And I almost want to ask you the question because <laughs> I know you've actually read it. And so I want to say what you think makes it different, but I'll give you my shot. I, one, I think it's a journey described versus a topical discussion. In other words, you know, it's really important to do that. So I, the way I thought of it was, this is a roadmap of sorts, you know, from, from where you're at to maybe where you want to get to and maybe some help to figure out where it is you want to get to in the process versus a group of, of deep brochures about every destination, you know, a, along the way. And then secondly, you know, it's, it's real. It's real stories, the stories I lived and, and experienced, failures as much as successes, a lot of books I've read, you don't read about failure. Mostly you read about how good everything went, you know, and they don't tell you the ugly, you know, and the mistakes, you know, that it took to find any success. Some would say it's got a little inspiration, you know, from, for people. And I think it's got some humor in it and it makes it readable when you're done. It's an easy read. And yet I think it is full of practical advice and a calling in it to, to build something different that that affects the cultures that you lead, love, and, and the people that you care about that are in those cultures. Well, I think you kind of hit the nail on the head for me is I am drawn to leadership books where people are telling a story, not just spewing out information and yeah. statistics. Uh, anybody can do that. But you drew me to your personal stories. And I know you'll, sh you'll share a couple, yeah. I'm sure. And especially because you come from a healthcare background and, and having worked at the highest levels in, in a top ranking hospital system. And I've been there, I've worked in hospital systems yeah. and it can be brutal. But here's the thing, Brian, your stories, my stories, it doesn't happen only in hospital systems or healthcare systems. Um, and that's the, the beauty of your book is the message is transferable to any industry, any setting, any environment. And it speaks to our humanity. So anyway, so I'm going to hop off but, my little soapbox. But it's a great point. And, you know, obviously I wrote from my experience. So I've had some people who think the book is about healthcare, and it's not. It just happens to be the canvas that I had available to me, you know, to use to paint the picture and paint the story. And, and the great part I thought about it was, you know, we love those shows about hospitals. You know, I thought about Grey's Anatomy and, you know, ER and some of those shows. There's so much drama and there's so much complexity going on in any healthcare, you know, operation. I mean, it's a 24-7 life and death crisis, you know, to, to glorious events like birth all occurring in, in a very strange amalgamation of, of business complexities and mission complexities that all come together. So I've kind of just concluded... 
hopefully it's a little interesting to people, even if you don't know the industry, because we've all experienced the hospital. We're yeah. all connected and understand what it's there for. And, and yeah, I also thought we should care. I mean, you know, you as a community member ought to care what's going on at your local hospital and what, whether that's a toxic environment or not, because if it's a toxic environment, you know, as, as Sandy Sugar, who wrote in the forward for my book said, when you don't get it right in healthcare, it's a matter of life and death. Mm. And that's the cost of, of poor leadership or, you know, non-love based leadership. So, so thanks for bringing that out as a healthcare. That, to me, that was, you know, fun and be real clear with your audience. Yeah. You know, this yeah. isn't about healthcare, you know, right. Like, it certainly has those elements. Yeah. And so you have seven major themes of leading with imagination. I'm very curious. Can you give us an overview and basically what are they? But I'm also curious about this. Was there one that really stood out for you as you wrote the book? Marcel, that sounds to me a little bit like asking me which one of my five children and, <laughs> and two dogs do I like the best? <laughs> but I'll, I'll give it a, a shot and just go through it. So I'll go really fast because there's, there's seven of them and we could, yeah. we could spend you know, a long time on it. So, and they kind of go together, but there's sort of an order to them. But you know, really, I just kind of, this is what I discovered in the process of trying to figure out how to lead and do it differently. These are the things that just kept recurring back and I could not escape them. So the first one is, is right in your, your thing, love and all interaction, you know, and, and I had fun because the chapter for that one was called what's love got to do with it, which was reflective of, huh? You know, so love is the key and the basis and the start and the, you know, all in of imagination. And, and that was a, a learning, even as I was writing the book, you know, a bit that that ended up being the first place that we began really talking about the seven, you know, sort of principles. So that's kind of the beginning. Um, if you don't get that right, it's really hard to make the rest of, of the mm. process work. So the second one goes right into authenticity and humility. Um, and, and we call that out of the comfort zone. Um, wouldn't we love all to stay where we're not being challenged, we're not having to be, you know, kind of exposed, you know, we can kind of still hide our, behind our masks and, and keep, keep the people we're working with a bit distanced. And, oh, my, what a great opportunity not to have to deal with my ego, you know, as well. So then the sec third one was environments. You know, I think there are so many little things that happen, um, you know, to us that we aren't even paying attention to. So I love the notion of creating culture um, because I truly think it is art, you know, and that is this notion of all the little symbol organizations are just full of symbolisms. You know, you think about how many of us have driven by the executive parking lot and seen covered parking where all the rest of the people have their cars beaten you know, down by the sun, wind, and rain. There's a symbolism in that. And mm. so for me, it's being very attentive and cognizant of everything you do as a leader matters in terms of a message that it's conveying. Then the, the fourth one gets right back into this issue of vulnerability, and, and I call it right risk-taking. Um, it's not about being an adrenaline junkie. It's about taking very, very measured and calculated um, you know, risks because you can't move forward if you aren't willing to take risks and do something different. So I kind of think of that as, as the acts of fearlessness that, that leaders really should be required you know, to do. Or the way I, somebody's described it to me is the idea of you got to let control, let go of control um, at times. And so that's a piece of that. Then it gets to me kind of fun. Then it's about, um, I call it tolerating curiosity. Um, I think curiosity is an incredibly powerful tool in the journey you know, to, to a richer, you know, more productive imagination. But it's a rascal. 
You don't control curiosity. You don't know where it's going to take you. You don't know what you're going to run into. You don't know what challenge, you know, a simple question is going to raise, you know, for an entire or- organization. But, but I think there's something about true leadership of getting the truth. And, and curiosity is a major tool at, at getting to truth. Then it finishes up with, with humor. Um, you know, and people have looked at me and asked me, huh, why is humor? you know, so critical as part of that. And I think of it as the ha-ha to aha moments that occur around humor. But, but there's another part that ties right back to love, is that I think humor is one of the most deep expressions of our humanity as, as our humanness, and our peopleness in an organization. So, so I, I'm like wired. If I want to understand how good an organization really is, just let me talk to the people and see how quickly they laugh and how eager they are in, in that. If they're not laughing, and having some fun, you know there's a deep problem in your organization. And then lastly is connecting the dots, which in my, my community in Orlando where I spent 20 years, there was a cheesy um, automobile dealership ad where the guy would come out the end and kind of point his fingers at you and go, whatever it takes. And so for me, you know, there's this element of leadership that is at the end of the day, you're the servant. And mm. so whatever it takes to help your people succeed because that's the success of the organization is what you do as a leader. So that's a tough chapter in that thing. So your question now, back to your, your question. I found um, love as the most difficult and daunting in, in the chapter I feared writing, you know, the most. When I realized that was going to have to be a part of the book, you know, I just had fear about trying to tackle that subject. I enjoyed um, the humor chapter, you know, writing that the most of any of the chapters. And, and I think the last one was really not any of these seven, but, but the very ending of a book is a really interesting place, you know, to be. And I struggled and struggled and struggled about the end of the book. And, and being a, a person of some spiritual leanings and faith, I, mean, I was on my knees a few, quite a few nights just going, God, what is it that you want me to say to end this book? And so I found that as most, the, the most awe and, and inspiring part for me of the, of the process when the answer came for that, you know, I can take almost no credit, you know, for the ending. It was sort of just a, a gift from somewhere to say, here's the ending. And so I still, when I read that last chapter, I, I mean, I get emotional reading it, you know, even though I've read it probably you know, too many times because of that experience of just, of just feeling like it was a gift, you know, to close the book. So, yeah. Sorry, long okay, so answer I, to, to your question. I love it. And so that triggered me to want to ask a follow-up question. So I'm going to go off the GPS here for a second because you said that in the love, how you start the book, it starts with love, basically. And you said something that's really compelling to me. You were fearful of having writing that book. Why is that? Of the book or that chapter? You mean? Of that chapter, of that, excuse that, me. Yeah. yeah. I think because at one level, who am I qualified to talk about love. You know, I always have this fear. If you want to you know, find out how authentic that chapter is for me, talk to my wife. <laughs> See what she'll tell you about. Oh, Mr. Love, huh? Let me explain Mr. Love to you. I mean, that, there's a human side of us that I just felt, I, I have no capability. I, you know, I'm going to get just crucified when I write the truth that I think is in it. Um, second is, I found a language problem. I mean, you think about the way we use the language of love. And I'm working on this, like, love, the word. We, it's a four-letter word. You know, we use it from everything from, oh, I love peanut butter and ice cream. You know, we, we use it in a sense to talk about the most intimate, you know, physical contact that we have with another human being. 
We use it to talk about the score I had in my last tennis game, you know? So it has this sort of morphed thing to it. That what is it? We don't know it's defined as. So I'm going to start with what's the definition of love I'm even talking about, you know, when it comes to imagination for, for this book. So I think somewhere in that, and then I didn't also want to, from a creative standpoint, I didn't want to take away the reader's journey by telling them way too much about a topic that is so ununderstood and so deep and so beautiful and so art, you know, kind of centered in a sense that, you know, I'm writing a business book, you know, I mean, love is that thing that sits at the center of all great songs and all great plays and all great, you know, art, you know, kind of things. So I don't know, somewhere in that's a long answer again, but so I have 50 shorter, but, but that's somewhere in that space that I struggle just even approaching it. Yeah. And it's funny because as leaders, we, I think by design, we inherently want to love other people. And sometimes um, the, the business of business gets in the way because we have so many uh, stakeholder expectations to meet and numbers to crunch and, you know, metrics and all that KPI stuff that we lose ourselves and we lose the ability to love because of that. And, uh, and so I think that you're bringing that out in the open to say, yeah, well, all those things still matter. The business side of things still matter, of course. But if you wrap everything around love, the results are going to be even better. And, and that's what I found in your book. And that's what I find in any, any kind of leadership philosophy that, uh, that aspires to lead through putting humans first, uh, to valuing employees first, ahead of profit, ahead of even your customers. Yes, yeah. I said it. You're going to find that um, you know, performance is going to be much higher. Productivity is going to rise. And uh, it's good for business. And, and you've got 31 podcasts all giving testimony to that. Um, starting with Ken Blanchard and your number one, who, who, who was very compelling in that regard, mm-hmm. to Ross, the last one I listened to, that you did, I thought he, that the same thing. So everyone I've, all the way through keep saying, you know, that same statement about, it, you know, it's, it's proven. This isn't, we're making this up and we're not being soft and it is about performance. Yeah. So well, thank you, right. thank you for that. You have a lot of stories in your book about leading with imagination. Is there one that really stands out for you from your experiences that you want to share? Hmm. Yeah, there are a lot. So it's hard to pick one that, that do, but maybe, maybe one of the early ones that really kind of, again, reinforced, and it's a simple short story, is that, you know, we, we had these leadership meetings we would do about three times a year. You know, the spring would be, you know, here's how we're doing so far, you know, into the year. The uh, summer one would be uh, beginnings of the budget process and the planning cycle and, you know, again, reminding where we are performance-wise and then strategy-wise, but then where we're, we're beginning to lay the foundation for the next year. And then in the fall would be a little bit more, we finished all of the, the work, you know, now we got to get geared up to execute into the new year. And this was one of those off-site kind of 500 leaders sitting out in front of me. And I'm supposed to get up and then start the process of, of outlining the next year. It had been a tough, uh, busy year, not a bad year, but a very intense, difficult year moving a number of the, of the big strategies forward. And I got up to start to talk. And, and Marcel, it's just one of those moments, again, I, I don't know what happens, but I always try to be about at least 20% open is my logic. 
whenever I'm going to present something, I would say I need to have 80% locked down and know exactly where I'm going, but I need to leave about 20%, you know, to, to, to just go where my team needs me to go or where something strikes me to talk to. And that morning, as I began, I just looked at the, the group of people in front of me. I said, you know, I know you all have a life. I know that some of you right now are caring for your elderly parents. Um, some are caring for your, your, your kids at, at home. Some are doing both simultaneously. And some are dealing with real crisis right this moment. And you're sitting here, you know, trying to do your best to pay attention, you know, to, to this thing we got going on. So I just want you to know that I know that. And I'm appreciative of all you do, you know, to, to, to move our organization forward and for your commitment to that. Then I went right back into, you know, the budget and the, you know, the performances we, we needed to do and the good and the bad and the ugly. And I didn't think anything of it. It was just, you know, quick moment, maybe all of a minute and a half, maybe of time. But I got more feedback and my team got more feedback for that simple statement than any other of our grand and glorious strategic brilliance, you know, that we were, we were outlining. And so to me, it was, again, one of those just moments of both success and failure wrapped into one thing where I felt bad that we don't do that. I didn't do that more and it. And, and they were reacting to something I felt like they shouldn't react to because I should be doing that all the time. And yet success in that it mattered and it meant something. To, to the team as they listened and absorbed that going forward. So and I don't know, maybe it made it okay to acknowledge that. And that was kind of the notion is you just acknowledged our humanity and that mattered. So now, Brian, you would probably agree with me that, you know, to, to be a high level leader, an executive uh, requires some level of confidence and charisma, maybe even ego. And yet, ladies and gentlemen, I'm talking to the former president of a $4 billion enterprise here. So I'll pose the question like this. You said ego is a chronic disease. So what do you mean by that? Hmm. Well, I, the only way I can even start this is make it extremely personal. And I do that by saying when I was 39 years old, I was riding my bike, which you'll see is a theme. Um, and I was getting headaches every time I go ride the bike. And, you know, so my own self-diagnosis was, oh, must be my neck, you know, that I'm getting this headache from leaning over the bikes wrong. Maybe I got to get my positioning better. So I shared that with my wife and she reminded me that just because I work in a hospital doesn't mean I'm qualified to give diagnosis or to self-diagnose myself. So she uh, strongly encouraged I go see a real doctor. <laughs> and, and what I did you know, he was a friend of mine, so I just kind of did an informal thing, and he just looked at me, because you got any family history of heart disease? And I went, heart disease? I go, yeah, but, um, you know, my dad didn't have open heart surgery, so he was 55 or, you know, almost 60. He goes, I'm 39. What does that stuff have to do with me? He said, tell you what, it was right before Thanksgiving. He says, right after Thanksgiving holidays, go see a cardiologist. Um, I did. Did one of those fun little stress tests where, you know, you get on it and it makes you feel like you're going to have a heart attack if you weren't <laughs> already prone. And, and I failed it, you know. And then they took me in to do a, what's called a cardiac cath, you know, which is where they, you know, in, in your groin up and take a camera inside you and look around. And that showed like a 98% blockage, you know, in a right artery. And so, okay, well, that's, that's weird. Um, but okay, well, now it's fixed. You know, so got that taken care of. Three months later, I was going through the same process. 
and another blockage just down from where the first blockage was. And I, I reasoned that, eh, they don't like to tell you this, but they must have messed up something or missed something, even though I couldn't quite explain how that would be possible. Um, nine months later, um, I, I started having real chest pain. And all these other symptoms were never normal you know, um, symptoms. So I have a normal chest pain. And then same drill. And turned out that was a blockage in the left um, artery, which many of us may know is called the Widowmaker. So that one almost led to open heart surgery on the table, you know, when they were, couldn't get it quite fixed. So before that third time, you know, you're sitting, you know, on your bed, you know, you're sitting with your wife at that point, our youngest of five was one year old. And you're starting to have this, this feeling that I may not be here to, to watch them grow up. And what does this mean? And, you know, a sense of failure for me that I wasn't man enough to muscle through this and be ready to go. So your perspective changes a lot when you think you're going to die, um, when you may be you know, dramatically shortened. So that led into the, the truth of when I started understanding my leadership better, realizing that, you know, I now live with a chronic disease called heart disease, uh, and, and it doesn't go away, Marcel. You know, I can't wish it away. It's always there. And I started thinking about, you know, this thing of ego is the same way. You may not want to admit you have it, but we all have this disease, you know, called ego. And it, to me, it shows up in at least three types of ways. Way too many times I think it's about me, you know, and, and then way too many times I start thinking I'm doing pretty good, you know, and, and then way too many times I start using language like, well, I deserve, well, mm -hmm. I should get, you know, well, they should, you know, kind of stuff. And so... So to me, that was sort of this fundamental awareness that, you know, you have a disease, it's called ego. And if you don't take your medicine, just like any other chronic disease, it'll kill you. And at minimum, you know, it'll put you in the hospital or put you in an ER, you know, getting a pretty painful intervention. Yeah. So is there a cure? What's the medicine you take for this condition? <laughs> no, there's no cure. <laughs> um, you know, short of one day, maybe finding a home in heaven or something. I don't, I don't think there's a cure. Um, here. I don't know. That's a hard question because I think, you know, as I use, if I keep the metaphor going, we all have different DNA and we all have, you know, different level or, or severity of condition. Um, mine on a lot of days seems to be somewhat severe. And so, so I have to take maybe harder medicine than some. So I don't know. Some of, I could give you a list that I use, but the, the, some of the big ones maybe are, I say sorry a lot. Never gets easy. I don't know why it doesn't, but every time I go to solve a problem that I created, you know, sorry seems to always be a challenge to find its way, you know, out, you know, so, I, but I do say that and, and that helps an, an awful lot. I've always joked that it wished that, that, you know, the old Mary Poppins movie, you know, a spoonful of sugar, you know, helps the medicine go down. I keep wishing they'd come up with a sorry gummy bear, you know, <laughs> that I could just pop it every a couple of times and it wouldn't, wouldn't uh, taste so bad. I think also I did a very specific thing. I gave my chief people officer, a guy named Ed Hodge, permission to call me out, you know, mm. sometimes in a meeting, if you thought I was really off the reservation, to call me out. And, you know, that was incredibly helpful because he would often pull me aside and explain to me how I came across in a meeting or what, what, what damage I may have done that I probably would have been completely unaware of. So I think that's that. You know, for me, practicing a spiritual discipline is certainly, you know, an element of it. Um, and then I started working on this notion of saying, I don't know. And, you know, when you're sitting atop, as you described, a $4 billion organization, there's a lot of pressure to say, I know. And so being willing and able to start learning to say, I don't know, 
and live with that, I found is also pretty good medicine. So it kept me from thinking I had to have all the answers. So there's a long list and everybody's got to kind of figure out their unique medicine that, that sort of works for them. So here's the recap of that little segment, because I, I feel this is crucially important for people to know. Okay. You saw ego like this. It's about me. And, oh, I'm doing pretty good. And then blaming someone else for maybe for problems that were your own. And I love the fact that you wrapped everything as the antidote to ego as a chronic disease around humility, which is a powerhouse leadership principle. And you said this, say sorry, because that takes care of a lot of the things that you just mentioned, right? Blaming other people, realizing that, no, it's not about me. It's about the people I serve, right? And uh, I love the fact that you gave someone else permission to call you out. Obviously, this is going to be somebody that you trust in your inner circle that sees something that you don't. So that's about building self-awareness because, yes, we have to be able to sometimes just back away and say, okay, I need another perspective. And then I love the practice spiritual discipline, whatever religious background you're, you, you know, you come from, have something that you can, you know, be able to reflect on something greater than yourself. Yeah, that's right? a, that's exactly that's exactly the point. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, and then the last one I love is say the most three powerful words that any leader will probably say. Right, I don't know, yeah. and uh, I think uh, Gary Ridge, um, the CEO of. Uh, WD-40 company uh, also told me that as well. So that's good advice. All right. So let's transition to trust because a lot of principles of leading with imagination, once you figured out, once you're authentic and vulnerable and you create the right company culture and allow people to take take risks and all of that, it leads to trust. Or is it the other way around? Do you first need to trust people in order for all those things to happen? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll tell it in a story that to me sort of, uh, you know, was me a picture of what it looks like. For your audience, you know, there's a thing called joint commission, which sort of certifies or, you know, allows you to continue to operate essentially as a hospital. Well, two or three months after I, you know, took over the hospital operations, we had our survey. And um, for lots of reasons that aren't, aren't relevant right here, you know, we didn't do well. Um, and it was an enormous feat to eventually get through that and, and become fully certified. So three years later, you know, it's about an every three-year process, we were getting ready to go through our next cycle where there would be nobody to blame but me. First time, you know, when you're the new guy, at least you can, you know, you, know, you got to get through it, but at least you don't feel fully responsible for it in some ways. Um, so they showed up. That's a surprise visit. You don't know they're coming. And, you know, first meeting went well, they're, they're, they're ready to get back into work. So they're scattered throughout your hospital. An hour later, our entire clinical computer system crashed. Um, my two chief clinical officers are in my office minutes, you know, after, you know, we, we, they learned what was going on and shared this with me. And I started laughing. And I know that wasn't the, what they expected, you know, my reaction to be. And I looked at them, I said, I'm an accountant by training. Do you know how many days have gone by that that computer hasn't even hiccuped? A thousand and ninety-five. I calculated it. I said, "Today's the day that it goes bad." When the Joint Commission just showed up, I, 
what are the odds of that? I mean, that's just such crazy odds. You just have to stop here and acknowledge this is fantastic you know, <laughs> yeah. as an event. And I said, but guys, here's the thing why, why I'm, I'm, I'm so amazed that this is the chance we have. We'll really know who we are and what we've accomplished over these last you know, three years trying to change and, and adapt this culture. Because we're going to see who blames who. We're going to see how people respond in the, with, with this, this existential threat on us right now. We're going to see how people come together. We're going to see what the real guts and the real part of our culture is. So to me, what happened out of that, the Joint Commission, when they finished, were saying things to us that they're not even supposed to say. They were so inspired by what they saw. Oh, we, we, the computer's not getting results of the laboratory to the ER because the computer is broken in between. People had to figure out, how are we going to do that? We got real patients going on. So all week long until it was like two days before the computers came back up, you know, people were figuring this out. In, in the culture that I think would have existed prior, they would have been pointing their fingers at the IT department. You know, they would have been blaming the company we hired to actually you know, manage all this for us. But there was none of that. It was all about solutions. People were laughing and joking about, well, you know, can't imagine this again. You know, there were nurses, probably 30, 40% of our workforce had never even done work, not on a computer, you know, in the hospital. So all that to say to me was a picture of, of what high trust looks like. And then I, I think back, well, what, what was that? Then I start just rattling off my list. And I don't, I think there's lots of answers to this question. And I think every leader has got to kind of figure out, you know, what are the elements for, for me and my experience, it was a lot about truth, you know, about yourself, you know, and about your environment and about your leadership and its impact on the people around you. It was about being consistent. Um, mm -hmm. and, and when you aren't be highly accountable, apologize, and, and, and you have to go above and beyond. When you're the leader. You can't get away with a simple, easy apology. You have to be very proactive to, to convince people that you're not going to punish them again, you know, and, and be inconsistent, you know, tomorrow when, when they come and tell you something bad. I found something very profound in the difference of those two, because as a servant leader mindset that I try to come at it with, I have a responsibility to help them be accountable, not a, not a judge role to, to hold them, you know, accountable. I think there's something there. I found seeking others' ideas and fostering curiosity and creativity, which goes along with listening a lot, um, was, was helpful to that. And then one that I think doesn't get talked about much um, is staying focused, um, you know, keeping an integrity to doing what it is that, you know, you and the organization said you would do. Because there's, some, there's a sinew in that, in our muscular, in our, in, our, in our confidence in each other, is that if you're not doing what you said you could do, that's not love. You know, that's a soft kind of mushy, you know, low integrity love. And so I found a lot of value, um, and it might have been one of the hallmarks people might describe, is just being relentless on the fundamentals. You know, you know this is not an excuse for not doing the hard grinded out work. That re we're required to do that work as a result of the love principle that that we're trying to articulate. So that that's just not a full list, and it's not the only list, and it just happens to be the list I experienced. You know, um, you know, in the journey. Yeah, Brian, I want to transition to a discussion about love and fear, which really has been a running theme in this conversation and throughout your book, but especially how fear plays a role in destroying our ability to lead with imagination. 
and like you said, you know, foster a high trust organization and culture. But let me first share about a research project I'm involved involved in right now that uh, you listeners may have an interest in participating. So some of you that that have been following this podcast know that I've partnered up with Renee Smith. Renee is founder of A Human Workplace. And what we're doing is we're gathering stories about love and fear in the workplace. 500 to be exact. So we're gathering 500 stories. We have a story portal. I'll get to that in a second. And so we're using this, um, these stories to better understand the impacts of fear and of love in the workplace, especially from a leadership standpoint. So why are we doing this? Well, because we believe stories are one of the most compelling ways to open up a better understanding of the consequences of harmful workplace norms that still exist today. And then there's the opposite of that, of course. We want to collect stories, and here's the good stuff, of how you were loved and how that led to you loving your job and and what you do and loving your boss and your coworkers. And we're speaking of love in a non-romantic sense here, folks, okay? We're speaking of love as loving action, right? That leads to business results and business value. So we're, we're collecting those stories. And maybe if you come from a healthcare setting or a hospital, that you want to contribute your stories of how that impacted how you served your patients and other community members better and how it raised your performance and how it, um, it helped um, your commitment to the job and as well as your well-being. So all of these stories that we're gathering are going to help us convince leaders at the biggest companies and hospitals on the planet to shift from fear to love once our research is, is published. So here's my offer. If you want to participate in this very important research and contribute your story, I'm going to give the first 15 people that respond to uh, our survey a copy of Brian's book, Lead with Imagination. All you have to do to get your free book is go to the show notes to this episode on my website, marcelschwantes.com, and click on the Love in Action podcast tab. And you're going to see a link for entering your stories of love and fear in the workplace. It's 100% anonymous. So Brian, um, let's go back to chapter two. I mean, your, your book um, has this whole chapter about love. And I love that you said on page 66 that, and I quote, many in the organizational development and, and HR professions, and I might add, Brian, most top-down leaders in general who rule through fear and control would describe love as a soft skill. And you say, quote, this language betrays us and keeps it out of our hard business strategy dialogues. <laughs> Is there really a place for love as a business strategy? <laughs> yes. I don't know what other thing produces so much power, you know, and, and opportunity. You know, in the chapter I finally wrote, you know, it really... It's the shortest chapter of the entire book, very intentionally. And it really just says three things. Love is power and powerful, you know, over yourself and over the organization and as infused into whatever it is you do, it's better, you know. And I tell a story about being in an ER with my daughter and, you know, an unfriendly and very unhelpful, unloving physician and the impact that had on, on the thing. And all of us can remember the teacher, the doctor, the you know, you know, profess somewhere where you felt love come through as a customer, that's memorable. 
um, you know, f- forever. And then I do finish with love is hard. Mm. You know, love is hard. So I don't think there's any choice. Yeah. And then there's fear. Um, why do you think fear is still so prevalent in, in how businesses are managed when we have so much evidence that points the other way that love, care, and compassion leads yeah. to high performance? It's a great question, Marcel, and it probably could spend a whole nother hour just on that <laughs> one question. But I guess maybe in a, in a short amount of it, um, it's easy. Yeah. It's accepted and, and often expected. Um, and I remember feeling that when I first took over. Every time, if you do what everyone else does and you get a poor result, you're, you're kind of sort of safe. But if you are struggling to get a result and you're doing it different, then everyone starts to question, do you even have any clue you know, what you're doing? Because you're not doing what's expected or what's, what's accepted. So I think it takes some courage, certainly, to start to lead out of that. And I think it, it allows you the illusion that your weaknesses and your gaps you know, in leadership, which we all have, can somehow be kept from being exposed. Wow. Um, and so I, I think there's something that there's also, you know, um, I'm trying to remember his name, but the CEO of Chibani, um, you know, the yogurt company, he made a really interesting statement to me being an accountant and having probably done hundreds and hundreds of spreadsheets. He goes, spreadsheets are lazy. So, you know, to connect the dots, when I say love is hard, it is hard because you have to be exposed and vulnerable and, you know, engaged in a way you don't have to. But it's also hard because, you know, and I call that when I'm in my, in my finance days, it's where I first grew up before I moved operations, you know, I always called it monkey budgeting. You know, the way you, you budget, you just tell everyone, well, I need a 5% cut from you, Marcel, in your department. Well, how smart and how creative and how, you know, you know thoughtful do I have to be to simply demand an across-the-board cut? you know, out of your department. That's, that's lazy. Um, much harder to say, okay, from a love perspective, what does our customer really need? And how can we be more creative to figure out how we can live within the financial constraints or performance requirements we have and, and achieve still high love to our customer, keep our, our, our incredible staff, you know, loved and appreciated and valued in this? How can we get their ideas to know what the real problem is to do it more efficiently, you know? But instead, we default to what I call a limiting process. I mean, all my experience in budgets, so they're limiting processes. What's the least I can perform and, achieve and, get, and get through the cycle of the budget? You know, I always had this idea that what if I can make a budget, this idea where, oh, let's see what the potential is, and then you lived in no fear that if you fell short of that, that you'd be okay. And we all know, we all live it every day, the story of, I missed budget. Oh, no. Are you going to be able to keep your job? You know, but that's all about managing to the lowest possible, you know, denominator mm. instead of saying, I'm going to shoot for the moon, Marcel. And, and you're going to tell me that if I miss the moon and I land in the stars, that we're going to be just fine. But, but that's not how our, our wiring works. So, so to me, that's kind of what I mean by love is hard, you know, and maybe it's lazy. Not love, fear is lazy, you know. Interesting. I get the same answers that overlap with your answers, you know. Yeah, yeah it's safe. Uh, so we don't want to stretch outside mm-hmm. our, our comfort zone. Um, laziness. And, and then what's interesting is the illusion that our weaknesses are going to be exposed if we actually lead through love. When the exact thing that you're yeah. doing by lead, leading through fear is 
it's causing a lot of harm and uh, pain in people's lives, not to mention it's hurting your business. Yeah. So I love the varying degrees of answers that I get whenever I ask the question. But let me ask you this, because this pertains to your book now. How does leading through fear actually affect the very principles of your book? You know, leading with imagination, like fostering creativity amongst uh, your, your team members and, you know, helping raise curiosity. How does fear affect all of that? I'll probably have a different answer than some would have. I think there is no effect because you really can't have those things, you know, live in a world of fear. So I think of it like, you know, fear and love don't coexist, you know, and light and dark don't, don't coexist. So to me, it's like almost one of those like self-evident yeah, principles that, you know, there's a great study by, by McKinsey, I think, that something like 80% of CEOs believe innovation and creativity are the future, you know, of those companies and their, and their growth strategies. And then when you ask them what's the critical element of it, you know, they will say it's people and culture. And, and then 67% will say they're completely unsatisfied with, with the outcome of their, of their cultures to create that. And I'm always just astounded by that, that the next obvious question to me is, and what are you doing wrong as the leader? But the responses are more, I'm unhappy with our culture. And then we do things like hire a chief innovation officer. Well, isn't that supposed to be all of our jobs? We're going to hire a chief ex patient experience officer. Well, isn't that like all of our jobs? So, but I find it, it's one of those, like, again, things you can do and tell your board that, you know, well, we've hired this, now we're doing something, you know, and, and I always find that the first question that has to be asked of a leader is, what am I doing um, mm. that, that's in the way of what I want, want to accomplish? And I found that over and over that every time I was frustrated with a lack of progress or something I didn't think was working right, unfortunately, the most compelling answer to the problem often was me. Mm. And it required me to have to go back and understand feedback you know, from the team that explained to me <laughs> where I was the problem. Um, and I think I mentioned love's hard. Um, and so those are hard conversations you know, yeah. on, both, on both sides. You know, the team doesn't like having that conversation with you. Um, and it's not a fun conversation to be, to be having on the other side either. So I don't know, that's, a, that's my answer. They just don't exist together. And that's why you can see such compelling studies, you know, like 80% say it's important, but 67% are completely unsatisfied you know, with the result. And the next obvious question isn't, what am I doing wrong as a leader? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's been a rich conversation and we bring it home with a couple of questions. What's really tugging at your heart right now that you would like the world to know? You know, I think that our world is in such a place of unlove. And we've become so intolerant of anyone who doesn't think and see the world that we do um, that we're, we're just desperately in need of new solutions um, to the old problems that we all as human beings face. And, and I look around and see so much untapped potential to be able to create those new solutions, and yet it sits dormant. And so I guess what tugs at my heart is it's not just a matter of good business. It's a matter of, good, of great life if we can figure out how to tap into our imaginations, you know, to create something different. So that's kind of, I guess, where my, my mm. heart is. And it's a value to individuals, but it's just as much a value to our communities that we live in and in, in, um, function in as well. Yeah. And you get to close the conversation your way 
with one takeaway or a closing statement? Is there one thing that we can learn from you finally that will make a difference in our lives? Yes, but again, I'm going to color slightly out of lines and just thank you for all you're doing and for the time. This has been just a, a, a great conversation and, and I'm, I'm sad it's ending, <laughs> but, but I guess they all have to at some point. But I guess the final takeaway is that your imagination is your beginning of victory. Um, if you can't imagine it different, you can't see it different, it's really hard to make it be different. So I always think of imagination as that first step and first place of victory. Mm. And I look forward to hanging out with you for many, many, many more coffee conversations at our fine establishment. Uh, shout out to Wired Coffee Bar. If people want to connect with you, Brian, and uh, maybe grab a, a copy of your book and learn more about C-Suite Solutions, where can they go? You can certainly Google brianparadis.com. You can also look up Imagination Works Media on all the normal places, internet, Facebook, Instagram, but also Barnes & Noble sells the book um, online, Amazon. But I always encourage people, go find your favorite local bookstore and mess them up a little bit and ask them for the book so that they have to order it or go look it up and learn something about it. Excellent. All right, I'm coming right back with my final statement. Stay tuned. I've had the chance now to sit back and listen to that conversation with Brian. So what came up for you guys? For me, it's understanding that the role of a leader, it's not to have all the ideas. It's, it's really to create the kind of environment where everyone can express their ideas freely. So as you lead with imagination, you know, you allow others to do the same. But the way for that to happen is you got to have a process in place where you, the leader, you're now in the role of facilitating such a process for people to offer their insights, to, you know, give creative ideas and solutions to problems and exercise their human curiosity. This is what gives the people in your organization the chance to do and be their best. It's good for them. It's good for you as a leader, and it's great for business. Thanks for joining us, Love and Action Nation, and please do us a favor. If you like this episode, write us a review on Apple Podcasts and let us know how it impacted you. We depend greatly on your comments and positive ratings to get the Love and Action message across the world. Next week, I'm going to share my personal insights on what I've learned from some of my guests on the show. It's just going to be you and me and my reflections over the past year that I want to pass on to you to become a better leader that leads through love and action. I'll see you next week. Hey, Love and Action Nation. If you're enjoying the format of the show and the topics we talk about, and you want to bring this conversation to your company event or conference, I would love to explore the possibilities. Whether it's speaking or moderating a live discussion or a Q&A panel, or even producing a series of podcasts before and after your event, let's talk. You can reach me by email personally at marcel at loveinaction.club. That's Marcel, M-A-R-C-E-L, at loveinaction.club.